you have your Bible, join me in Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. As we come to Romans chapter 12, <clears throat> we are moving through the book of Romans, and we looked two weeks ago at presenting ourselves a living sacrifice and what that means to give to the Lord. And then we began last week looking at some of our service aspects for the Lord and how we each have different gifts. And those gifts differing are for a reason and how we can use those for the Lord's honor and glory. As we come today to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, I want us to look at 13 truths for everyday living. We have come into a very practical aspect of Scripture. And as Paul is writing, he's recognizing all that has gone on in the lives of the individuals to whom he's writing. He had a desire to be with those in Rome and to encourage them. He has gone through a great deal of doctrine, dealing with salvation, dealing with this new life in Christ, and a background of coming from a Jewish background or coming from a Gentile background. And now he's coming to just some very practical, these are things that ought to be in your life. Last week, your gifting makes you different. This week, these attributes, these truths will make you visibly the same. People will look at you as a Christian and see you differently because of these truths. Now, all of us have a mindset of what we think a Christian should be like. And that varies. It varies from a disposition, how the person's personality is. So there are some personalities we look at, we go, well, I don't see that as a very Christian type personality or disposition that they have. It extends even to the way that we see and the way that people dress or the way that they look visibly. We use phrases like, you cannot judge a book by its cover. But the reality is, everyone judges a book by its cover. You look at the cover, you see what the cover says, and you decide whether you're interested in the book or not. There is an aspect of Christianity in which people will see us, and Christianity will be defined by those individuals who claim to be Christian. I have said, and again, when you get into this from a connotative standpoint, it's not the way we see it today. But denotatively, meaning the strictest definitions of the word, you can be saved, you could have trusted in Jesus Christ, you could be on your way to heaven, and you cannot be a Christian. Now again, that's not the way we define those terms today, so you have to look at the actual definition. A Christian is one that is Christ-like, so that when people see you, they see Christ. And there is such a similarity that there is a connection of the names. So there are people who have trusted in Christ, who have believed, but they're not acting like it. Lot would be the perfect example of that. But we should be Christ-like as Christians. And then we look at the truths right here in the next few verses that help us see a lot of what that means. Verse 9, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate one towards another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. So as we look at these, there are going to be kind of some subcategories here. 
So we got 13 truths that are defined. These are characteristics that should be in a Christian's life. These are behaviors that should be there. And they affect different areas of our personal life. So the first we're going to look at are truths that affect our character. We, some weeks, months back now, did a study on what is character. But that part of us that yields to obedience to Scripture, that makes us Christ-like, the part that is not necessarily seen, the part that is inside at the core of who we are. These truths will help define who you are. And the first of them is simple. Let love be without dissimulation. That word dissimulation, it has an idea of hypocrisy, of insincerity to it. Often what would happen is there would be in those days counterfeit products. Now, there's very little of this today. We just don't have much of it. But you would remember even going back now, good grief, I guess it's getting close to 30 years ago now. When you would go and you would put coins into a Coke machine to buy a Coke. And you would put coins in. And every now and then, like if you put in a dollar, it would spit out some change. Now you don't get change from a dollar, are you kidding me? But you know, you'd, you'd get some change. And every now and then, you'd get your change back and you'd go, ah. Oh. And there would be a Canadian quarter. And you're like, I don't want that thing. It's worthless to me. And then they got a little smarter, and you would go to put that Canadian quarter in the Coke machine, and it would just kick it right back out. They'd finalized the weighting of them enough that now it was recognized that this is not authentic U.S. currency. I had a buddy from Canada, and I used to always joke, you could walk around, and they have loonies and toonies, which are dollar bill coins, you know, dollar and two dollar coins. So you can walk around with about $70 worth of change in your pocket in Canada, and it still will only buy you a Coke. But it, it, it's not that bad, but I used to joke with him about that all the time. And you have this money, and to you, it's worthless because it's not our currency. But there were people who would take it a step further. They would get little plugs. Um, a lot of times when you get electrical conduit and you get a metal box that you put electricity in, there's little round plugs in there that you knock out to run in your conduit. And those little metal plugs will come out and you can kind of shave that spot where it connects on there. And people used to take that little metal plug and they'd stick it in the Coke machine and it would think it was a quarter. And, and they would use that to try and get their Cokes. I never did this, okay? I'm just saying that people do do it. And, and so you get those little plugs that would go in there. Well, it's worthless. It's just a little throwaway piece of metal. The idea here of dissimulation is a false coin. So people would make coins, they would make fake molds, and they would even use wax sometime. And they would make it look like it was a real, genuine, authentic coin of that day, but it would be a fake coin that would have no value. And they would try and get in the market and they would try to exchange this worthless money for real goods. When we love, we have a way of using a counterfeit love. Because we like to define love in our own terms. And Paul's saying here, look, if you're going to be different, you have a giftedness. Now take your gifts and use them for the glory of God. And as a Christian, in order for you to do that, you have to have a genuine love that is without hypocrisy. George Mueller is an excellent example. Uh, he had a love that changed him. 
Early in his life, George Mueller was a, a pretty wicked young man. He had gone about trying to figure out ways in which he could gamble, and, and he would gamble a great deal, and he would drink a great deal, and, and he became a pretty wicked individual. He'd been in jail. He got released from jail. He escaped from jail. He, he just had some rough aspects to his life. Mueller gets saved. He gets right with God, and his life so changed that he then gave everything he had to where he basically died with nothing so that he could take and he could have 10,000 orphans that he provided for, he met their needs, and he loved without dissimulation. His life had so changed that he went from a hypocritical, false-type personality to a genuine love that was completely self-sacrificing. As Christians, our love should be self-sacrificing. It's easy to show love when it's convenient. But true Christian love is one that shows itself not because of its convenience. Agape love can only come to those that have been transformed by the grace of God in their lives. My unconditional love comes as God's grace works in me, changes the very inner core of who I am, so that when I look at any given person in a situation, there is a genuine love for that person. Sometimes we try to feel pity or sorrow for someone, and, and we pity them, though it's not a genuine care. Paul says, Christians should be different in that your love should be so genuine that it is to the very core of your character and who you are. That can be difficult in the best of relationships. And Paul's saying it should be true in every relationship. Let love be without dissimulation. Continuing on. Abhor that which is evil. The word abhor there is to detest utterly. Uh, there's a different Greek word that can be used for hatred that is concealed, that, that is kind of hidden. This is an expression of hatred that moves away from that which is evil. It is an outward reaction to it. We live in a culture, in a day and age, in which we are cozy with evil. We're comfortable with evil. And we feel good about things that... God would not look on as right. And yet culture has made it to where it's very comfortable. One of the things, I have been listening to several many biographies recently, and in doing so, when you begin to get perspective on things from hundreds of years ago, it helps you see how culture has changed in our day and age. If you go back 100, 200, 300 years, and you look at Christianity over that time, the difference in Christianity from one group of believers to another group of believers was very small if they had the same doctrinal position. So if they believed in salvation by grace through faith, the Unitarian Church in England, at one point they did not believe that Jesus was God and that Jesus did not exist before he became a man on earth. Well, there's a different doctrinal position. And so people would separate based on a different doctrinal position. So there was a time over hundreds of years in which doctrine was what divided. Because apart from doctrine, there was very little difference. People recognized certain things to be right, certain things to be wrong. There was a ready acceptance of the same principles. Fast forward to our day and age, and now inside of a similar doctrinal position, there can be a massive range of accepting right and wrong. And so we now live in a different day to where it is much more difficult to function because doctrine is easy to understand the distinction and difference. 
But when it comes to living inside where someone says, doctrinally, I believe that, but... We have to come back to this principle that even inside of my doctrinal position, I still have a responsibility to abhor that which is evil, to utterly detest those things that are evil. This is one of the great balancing acts of Christianity. I am to love without dissimulation, and I am to hate that which is evil. When those two come together in a person... I now have a tricky balance that I have to deal with. When they come together in a person that you have regular contact with, that gets even more difficult. So how do you balance loving someone with a genuine love that cares for their soul and hating evil when someone is directly involved in that evil? Now, there are certain evils that we see in individuals that we love and care for that are destructive to their lives, and the person even knows it. So if you're dealing with someone who's an alcoholic, and they are struggling with alcohol or drugs, some type of addiction, and that is destroying their life, they even can recognize the destruction and harm that that sinfulness is causing on their life and on their family in general around them. So there can even be an agreeance upon you about the hatred for that. But they have an addiction and they can't break the chain of that addiction. And they can't get away from it. So you look at it and you can hate that evil and you can love that individual because you recognize that they are bound in their addiction. You take that to a different level... When it's someone that you care about, but the sinfulness in their life is equally destructive, but they do not see it as destructive. That can be as simple as a way of thinking, a philosophy of life that has been ingrained in them. And they have learned it through perhaps some type of secular education. Perhaps someone has had great influence in their life. And just for the sake of making it a little clear but simplifying it for us tonight, let's just pick a political belief system that, that we would agree is dangerous. Okay, So if you take an individual who you love who has fallen sway to a socialistic, communist-type mindset, you look at that and you go, I, I still want to love them, but this belief is so core to who they are that it now gets hard to deal with loving them in this part of them that is so destructive, but they think it's right. Now there can be sinfulness that is equally destructive and even far more. That they have accepted and that sinfulness is destroying their life. And yet they think it's right. And they think you're wrong for disagreeing with them. That's very common. And Paul says when this happens, you can utterly detest and remove yourself from evil and yet you can still show love to that person often times it is hardest for us because when we detest that sin it is more and more true every passing year that becomes an identity to that individual and when you reject their sin they take it of rejection of them and so Satan is doing his very best to make these two things incompatible. But as a believer, they can both be compatible. It is my character. I do not have to be careless and loose with wickedness and sinfulness. I do not have to be accepting. 
And let me take this just a step further in your mind so you begin to think through this. There is right now, just forget among Christians, there is a clear stand that is being taken by many Americans in light of some of the things that are happening politically. And so that there are sporting events right now where the television ratings are tanking because people have said, I want to watch a game. I don't want to have to listen to that person's political point of view. And and so people have now said, look, I don't want anything to do with that sport because of their position and their point of view. You could argue that this is that idea of abhorring that which is evil. I think they're What they're saying is wrong. I think it's evil. I'm going to separate from it. Now, the truth be told, some of that is because of a Christian belief for some. A lot of it is because of a patriotic belief, which is not a bad thing. It's just a reality. So there's a willingness to separate from that. It's obvious. It's happening. I mean, the ratings for some sporting events right now are down as much as 40% as they were a couple years ago. And I'm not sad about that. Okay, so that's beside the point. But what if something comes on TV and it's equally got evil in it? Is there that rejection of that same evil? So Netflix right now, their cancellation rate is eight times what it was a month ago. It should be far more than that. They released a movie about the exploitation the sexual exploitation of children. And they use children to do this. This movie should not exist, okay? So that's mine. It's not the worst thing on Netflix. There's a Brazilian movie on Netflix that completely obliterates who Christ is and the wickedness and godlessness of it, and it's out there. And so people are now saying, look, well, I'll get rid of Netflix. And I, I think there's some healthiness to that. But we will also take other things that are equally evil and we will accept them. And we have to be very careful that we don't become comfortable with sinfulness in our own homes. You're in here, you've got some age on you. You can remember when TV shows came out 20 years ago that started glorifying a perverseness that... It was, as a whole, the country kind of stepped back from. But they made it funny. And they made things that we would define as morally and biblically wrong, like homosexuality. They defined it in humor. And it became very funny. And so then, that was now 20 years ago, and there was maybe one show that way. To where now, there's hardly a show that exists on TV that doesn't glorify it. To where now, I think it was the Academy Awards or the Oscars or whatever came out and essentially said, you can't qualify to be the show of the year unless you include that now. And there's a progression that we can get comfortable with. I can love without a a falseness about me, but I can also abhor that which is evil. It affects my character. And then continuing on, 
cleave to that which is good. Cleave is the idea of to be glued to. Cleave is a word that it's anonyms and synonyms, or synonyms are anonyms. So it has two meanings that could actually be the exact opposite of each other. In this sense, it has the idea of glue. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with superglue. So uh, I love superglue. I love to use superglue. It is extremely convenient when you need it. If you ever cut yourself, squirt a little superglue in that thing, man, it'll dry it right up. It's great. So I, I love superglue. The downside to superglue, it's really good at sticking. And, and so have you ever stuck your fingers kind of together with superglue? You're, you're trying to do something. And why does the tube always break in the middle? I don't understand. Anyway, you're, you're squeezing the tube out. And next thing you know, your fingers are kind of stuck together. And you're trying to get your fingers apart. The idea here is that we are to cleave. We are to be glued to, goo, to, to good. To goo. So, to good. So that you can't get it apart. Good cannot exist apart from God. So the idea is, will you cleave, hold on to, not let go of that which is God, that which is good? And it's easy to just let go of the good. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hold on to it even to the point that cleaving begins to be difficult. And I will not let go. Because it is the good that I am holding on to that begins to define me. Now, that can be extreme in multiple directions. In opposition to hating that which is evil, it can mean I'm not going to have that evil. I will hold on to that which is good. I will make sure that that is a part of my life. I will train it. I will teach it. I will promote it. But it can even be, go beyond that. It's I know that loving without dissimulation is good. So even in a day and age where it gets harder and harder and harder to show proper love, I'm not letting go of that. In a day and age when it gets harder and harder and harder to show grace, I'm not going to let go of that. When people around me begin to be ugly, I'm not going to be ugly back. I'm going to hold on to what's good. And we can focus on the negative. We can focus on all the problems. But Paul says, if you want your character to be different, have a genuine love that hates evil, but takes good and says, I'm going to let that define me. You want to change your life, change the way you think. Begin to think on those things that are, whatsoever things are, good. And we focus and we begin to hold on to those things. The next thing we see kind of starts a new category. This is how truth affects our contacts, people that we come into contact with. So our character is defined by what we hold on and what we make important. These truths help affect our relationships with other people. Uh, looking there at verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one towards another with brotherly love. Oh, kindly affectioned. Man, he's piling them on here. He's putting them together. Affection is to cherish one's child. So I have to be kind in a, a cherishing child kind of way with that Philadelphia brotherly type love. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. To dwell above with saints in love, that will indeed be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, well, that's... A different story. The, the, the idea and illustration here of brotherly love is Jonathan and David. 
Jonathan recognized that God had put his hand on David. And Jonathan was willing to go before his own father and essentially to risk his own life because he cared for David. And the world has tried to pervert that love. And that's such a shame. And, and we have tried to make it to where you can't have that closeness of fellowship anymore between individuals. And it's not true. David and Jonathan had such a genuine brotherly type love. And then you add to that a cherishing. So Jonathan, as history would tell us, was substantially older than David. All things being equal, Jonathan could have been the age of David's father. Now, probably not because David's father, David was the younger of the kids. But he would have been old enough to have been his father. And so when they go, you know, I, I see this in a little ways. My kids are all little here. I went into Home Depot one day with Pastor Jeff and the person asked, is this your son? And, and so, you know, yes, you can kind of feel bad about yourself. But the reality is, you know what, I am old enough to be his dad. That, that's kind of the relationship of Jonathan and David. And so to be kindly affectioned with brotherly love is to have a love that cares for the well-being of and the outcome for that individual. So to love my children has a different point of view. Because in being kindly affectioned, I am patient with them about things that I am not patient with other people about. Because I know their level of understanding, and I know where I want to get them to. I know where the Lord needs them to go. And so I, I have some idea and patience in trying to nurture and bring them along. That patience doesn't always continue with other people. There's an expectation I have of someone who is physically older. Though the reality may be that my children are far more spiritually mature than the individual to whom I'm dealing with. And to have that is to look at anyone, regardless of age, and to have an affection and a willingness to say, I'm going to help nurture and bring you along to a place of spiritual maturity, even if you're my elder. And that changes the way I deal with everyone. Again, it's so easy to say. It's so hard to live. But that's why Paul's saying, look, you've been given gifts. If you're going to be spiritually different than the world, here's how you're going to do it. And you're going to do it by showing a kindness to people all around you. And then he continues even in that thought. In honor, preferring one another. The word honor there has the idea of money behind it. Preferring is leading. Leading the way and showing honor that is due. It is to take and to put a value. Uh, I, I had an author one time that I listened to, and he said, you should look at every individual as if they have a sign around their neck that says, make me feel important. All of us like to feel important. Honoring is to validate the concerns, the individual, to give them value preferring one another so it is to take as if you are giving a monetary value to them and you're saying you're worth more than I am when something is of value to us we take care of it when something is not of value to us we don't and it doesn't matter what the real value is of it if you have something that has historical family value to you it can be essentially worthless but it has value to you because of the connection. And in that value you have placed on it, it now exceeds the monetary value that it's really worth. 
But that's okay to you. I will joke with the kids, man, I wouldn't trade you for a silver nickel. Uh, and the idea is, is you know, I, I think you're more valuable to me than a nickel. And so every now and then one of them will ask me, say, Dad, would you trade me for a dollar? No, I don't think so. I think it has to be at least two before I trade you, you know. But, but the truth is, I wouldn't trade you for anything. There is no monetary value that can be placed. The value that I give to them exceeds what anybody else could imagine. When I deal with someone, if I place a value on them, it has nothing to do with the world's definition of their value. But if I place a value on them and I lift them up in value in my sight, it will change the way I treat them. Society does this. But as Christians, we should do it not to someone that we place value on because of a particular skill set. We should place value on them because they're an image bearer of God. And God has told us to do it. So I love with a brotherly love. I show affection because I have placed a value that raises them up to a level that they are important. And if someone's important, then serving that individual doesn't become a big deal. It becomes a natural occurrence. In honor, preferring one another. The next set, these truths affect our conduct, the way that we go in and out of life. Look at verse 11. Not slothful in business. Slothful is tardy, irksome. Uh, Business is translated into diligence in verse 8. So up above there in verse 8 when it talks about ruleth with diligence, that's the idea of in their business, in their works. This is referring to secular work. It is an outlook that as I look at them, As I look at life, I am to be fervent in, I am to give all of my energy to, so that I am not slothful, I'm not lazy in business. Christians should be the hardest workers on the job. Don't be lazy. I've got a buddy who works for the government, and his position has changed now over the years. But for years, he was involved directly with the tradespeople that worked there in the Washington, D.C. area in the government. And so there were electricians, carpenters, painters. There were all these things. And all of the jokes about government employees, they're all true, and it's actually worse than what you think. I mean, it's just the jokes are there. So the joke was, how many guys does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, it takes four you got one guy who has to go up the ladder. You have a guy who has to hold the ladder. Once they change the light bulb, there's actually a seal on the light bulb. So a carpenter has to come in and recalk that light bulb. And then a painter has to come back in and recalk that or paint that caulking. And so it takes four to change a light bulb in the White House. Um, it, it's really that bad. And, and you look at it and these employees, as he would go through, once they're in the government, man, you can't get rid of them. And he made this statement one day. He said, if I can get a guy who shows up for work and shows up on time, I have a good employee and it doesn't matter what he does after he gets there. You've got to be kidding me. He said, oh no. He said, if they will just show up and they will be on time, I've got a good employee. The level is pretty low. And guys all the time would come in and say, hey, I, I want a promotion. Well, what have you done to get a promotion? He says, well, nothing, but I still want a promotion. I, I want a pay raise, so you've got to give me a promotion. And he, he told a guy no, so the guy sued him. And 
He, he kept insurance to protect himself for when he got sued, because he got sued all the time, because guys would just want a promotion, and he would say no, and so then they would claim he didn't do it for some reason whatsoever, you know, and, and it was just, you look at it and you go, good grief. There are Christians who have that government employee work ethic, and that's a shame. Our character as Christians ought to be that we are not slothful in our business, but we are diligent in our work. People work at different paces. That's not the issue here. It's that you are actively working hard at your job. When it comes to training your kids, when it comes to setting an example, set an example of working hard. I will say often, I said it to my in-laws two days ago. I said, I told Karen, did our parents work this hard when they were, when we were kids? Because you didn't notice it when you're a kid, but now you're like, good grief. If I sit down and I'm not doing something, I know there's a problem. It's like, what, all right, what did I forget? I got to get up and do something. And so we now try to set the standard in our home by staying active and staying busy. Because if we're lazy, our kids will pick up on it. Don't be lazy. Be one who is diligent in work, fervent in spirit. <laughs> this one I come by naturally. Fervent in spirit is hot to the point of glowing. Uh, Acts 18, 24, and 25. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Diligent is outward, fervent in spirit is inward. This is kind of the inward look. This is just that fire that keeps you going. That it's just hard for you to not be doing something. And as believers, we are to be on fire about what the Lord has called us to do. I've told you this, I admit it, I don't hide from this. COVID is driving me nuts because as a pastor... I just want to go. And I feel like we are just tied in so many ways right now. And it's hard for me. When it comes to our lives as Christians, we're really good about letting that fire die. And we need to stoke the flames of that internal fervent in spirit. I went on a missions trip to a man who was a missionary. He was down in Trinidad and Tobago. He'd been there for years. He said, I believe that everyone, everyone, everyone in the church ought to go on four missions trips a year just to keep their heart on fire. And I thought, well, most people can't go on four missions trips a year. I'd be happy if I can get people on one every four years. And he said, no, I really believe you ought to go on four. And from the mission field, he would go on missions trips four times a year. We need to be so Fervent in our spirit for the things of the Lord. And then continuing on, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. This is to be a slave for the Lord. By implication, this is of time. We should be investing our time in serving the Lord. This is the upward look. So outward, business. Inward, fervent. Upward, serving the Lord. I go through my life with the sole purpose that I am here for a reason and that is to bring glory to God. I set out to accomplish and invest my time in serving the Lord. The next set of truths. These affect our convictions. The way we go about what we do in our life. Rejoicing in hope. 
Rejoicing is to praise. Our anchor for the future and motivation for our service is rooted in our rejoicing and the hope that is to come. It is an eternal mindness. Priorities rest of our action. So I rest on the fact that my actions are based off of an eternal perspective that says, I am going to rejoice in the hope. I have the blessed hope of Christ. I told Kara, I said, man, we're just weak. Man, we're just weak as Christians. Um, I listened to two different biographies of two different individuals who got caught up in all of the events of the Holocaust. And one was in a concentration camp. The other went to prison and was executed eight days before German surrender. Eight days and he would have lived. Both of these individuals had opportunities to get out of the persecution. But both made choices to be in the middle of it because they had to serve the Lord. And they knew that the cause was great. And in the midst of all of this, one in concentration camp for month after month after month, terrible situation, terrible what they went through. And never one time is there ever a mention of, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? In prison, it was never, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And so many Christians today, we go through a bump in the road, and our first question is, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And yet they looked at it, and they went through it, and they thought, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to stand for you in this situation. There was a boldness that we have because they recognized this life is just temporary. I'm going to be before God soon. If this is what he has to prepare me for eternity, then let me endure this. And we just look at it and say, God, just get this away from me. There's no rejoicing in hope because our perspective is so limited. Patient in tribulation. Ah, oh, patience. To go through and to carry the load, to not want it removed. The Christian does not rebel in tribulation nor rashly accuse God. He is patient knowing that God is too wise to make mistakes, too loving to be unkind, and too powerful to be thwarted in his ultimate aims. Freedom from tribulation is not only not promised to the New Testament church, it is considered to be the norm that you will go through tribulation. We should be able to go through it and carry the load. But man, we just want to shed the load. I do fear that there will be more and more tribulation that will come the way of Christians in America. Uh, I believe we have great protections. I believe that those protections will help keep it at bay. But it's coming. And we shouldn't be scared of it. We should be patient in carrying that load. Continuing instant in prayer. Prayer is the power of the Christian to have God involved in changing eternity through what is done during this life. We should have persevering prayer where it continues on. It does not hold back. Probably nothing adds more passion and importunity to prayer than tribulation. Tribulation makes the believer's hope more real, and it makes his prayers more real as well. When we endure tribulation, when we go through it, our prayers get stronger. When everything's good, it's easy to let prayer fade. 
But we should be so rejoicing in hope, so looking forward to what's ahead, so determined to be fervent in our business, in our spirit, that we come and we look at the truths of Scripture, we recognize our world today, and we pray. And we pray instant. We continue. The next couple truths here, our last two, these truths affect our concern. What it is that we, we get burdened about in our heart. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Distributing to the necessity of the saints. Distributing is communication. Necessity has the idea of employment and providing there. Saints are ones that were morally pure and blameless. So we are to be communicating to those that are living for the Lord to help meet their needs. This is a difficult balance. Mercy is giving what someone doesn't deserve. Here it is. This is someone who has been faithful, who has a need, and we want to help that need. Oftentimes, the greatest needs present themselves in individuals who have put themselves in that position. They have made poor life decisions. They are enduring the natural consequences. And as a result, when we see those needs, we can get a little bit of attitude towards those needs. Well, they deserve this. The idea here is that we are to look for those that are faithfully walking with the Lord. And when they have a need, we're to go out of our way to help. And sometimes that means giving a job. Well, it doesn't mean giving somebody who's lazy a job where they don't do anything. No, it means trying to help provide in such a way that there is sustained taking care of individuals who are serving the Lord. It ought to be that if you have a business and you need to hire someone, that the first place you think of hiring someone is from your church. But the reality is most of the time it's the opposite. Because you think, well, I don't want to hire somebody from the church because if I hire them, well, then if I ever have to get rid of them. I have a friend who's a pastor. He said, look, I never, when he was building a house, he said, I never hire anyone from my church. He said, because no matter what, he said, I can pay them the same as anyone else. They assume that they are doing me a favor by doing it, and they never do as good of work for me as they do for everyone else. That's a shame that that can be said of Christian. But if we will be diligent in our business, and we will do a good job, fervent, and we will work hard then it ought to be that when someone has a need for a job in the church, that people in the church go, man, I'd love to have that guy working for me. Those work together, but only when these truths change the way of our character. It is a lavish generosity with one's worldly goods that shows the mark of a true disciple. And then the last phrase there is given to hospitality. The thought here is of actually pursuing opportunities for hospitality, not just passively waiting for them to come to you. It is going out and inviting people in, into your house for a meal, into your life for fellowship, into ways in which you can grow together and you can help go through this journey of life with support for each other for the cause of Christ. But we get so busy that it's hard to be given to hospitality. If you're in a culture that is a slower-paced culture and you go there, it can be so difficult sometimes. Because you're just ready to go. You say, hey, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. We're up in the bush of Papua New Guinea, and it's pouring rain. We're there for 10 days. That's what we got. We got to get this building up in 10 days. So the rain doesn't matter. So it's, let's start building. And 
to the level that half of our tools got fried the first day because we couldn't keep the rain out from the tent. It, it kept blowing in under the little canopy. I mean, it was, we got 19 inches of rain, I think, in 24 hours. So, I mean, it rained. And we just kept working. And then it rained the next day, but it was only a couple inches the next day. But again, we kept working. We had no choice. We had to go about it. The culture there, wake up in the morning, oh, it's raining. Go sit down. That's it. It's raining today. It's not, oh, I was going to do this. It's raining, so now let me do something else. It's, oh, well, I was going to do this, but it's raining. I just sit down. And it's a complete just sit and relax. The advantage to that is if three or four people are close enough and it's all raining on all of them, they just sit down together. And so they're given to hospitality and the world stops if you come by. And everything slows down and everything can wait because you're here. And there's an importance to you being here. They're given to hospitality. For us, it's, oh, hey, good to see you. Let me take care of this. At least it's me. Okay. We are so driven to accomplish that we lose the fact that hospitality is one of the things we need to accomplish. If I take these truths and I implement them into my life, then by Paul's definition, you've got gifts that are given to you. Exercise them by developing your character this way, by putting these truths into your life. And then when you come out of this, you're now a Christian that people noticeably see as different. When Christians start acting like Christians, then the church and the world will dramatically impact the world. But as long as Christians don't act like Christians, then why does the world need what we